A response to Denver Snuffer's essay entitled Plural Marriage, Part 2, Facade or Reality, by Brian Hales, narrated by Brian Hales. Abstract, Part 2 of this response to Denver Snuffer's essay entitled Plural Marriage, posted on March 22, 2015, will primarily address non-plural marriage issues as discussed in his last 20 pages. Snuffer's portrayal of adoption, teachings, and practices is analyzed and shown to be an error. Along with his interpretation of presiding priesthood quorums as described in the Doctrine and Covenants. His primary thesis, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is in apostasy, is also examined, including Snuffer's personal need for the Church to have fallen away in order to create an opening for his new visionary voice. The lack of evidence supporting such an apostasy is also reviewed, including the obvious absence of any prophesied Latter-day dwindling in unbelief. Snuffer is compared to other dissidents who have come and gone over the past century, showing his claims are not new, unexpected, or original. The final observation is that while the Latter-day Saints could be more obedient, a core group of righteous members and leaders has always existed in the Church through which the Lord could perform His restorative works. Despite the title of Denver Snuffer's plural marriage essay, the article focus shifts away from polygamy on page 28, leaving the last 20 pages to other topics which are addressed below. Heading, Sealing to Our Fathers in Eternal Glory. Snuffer first discusses a related topic, that of adoption, alleging, quote, Joseph knew it would do no good to seal ourselves to our dead ancestors, page 29, end of quote. This declaration is apparently based upon Snuffer's interpretation, which is clearly an error, of Joseph Smith's March 10, 1844 discourse. Wilford Woodruff recorded his instructions given that day. Again, the doctrine or sealing power of Elijah is as follows. If you have power to seal on earth and in heaven, then we should be crafty. The first thing you do, go and seal on earth your sons and daughters unto yourself and yourself unto your fathers in eternal glory. And go ahead and not back, but use a little craftiness, seal all you can. End of quote. Here Joseph tells us to be sealed to our, quote, fathers in eternal glory, end of quote. But who are these fathers? Are they our biological fathers who are now dead or someone else? Snuffer's answer may be surprising, quote, The fathers in eternal glory are not your kindred dread in the spirit world. They are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The family of man needed to reconnect to the family of the fathers, who had risen from the dead and become exalted. End of quote, page 29. Snuffer interprets the fathers in eternal glory as resurrected and exalted beings. He argues that they could not be our deceased biological fathers because they now reside as unresurrected spirits in the spirit world. Fortunately, on January 21, 1844, Wilford Woodruff also wrote the prophet's instructions which clarify the identity of the fathers. Quote, The gospel to be established by the saints of God is gathered Zion and built up, and the saints to come up as saviors on Mount Zion, but how are they to become saviors on Mount Zion? By building their temples, erecting their baptismal fonts, and going forth and receiving all of the ordinances, baptisms, confirmations, washings, anointings, ordinations, and sealing powers upon the heads in behalf of all our progenitors who are dead. 
and redeem them that they may come forth in the first resurrection and be exalted to thrones of glory with us. End of quote. Joseph taught that the sealing powers are for our progenitors who are dead, who will be exalted to thrones of glory with us. There is no mention of Abraham or other patriarchs. Additional evidences discounting Snuffer's view is found by investigating all of the known references of Joseph Smith to the fathers, their children, and Elijah's mission. The prophet mentioned Malachi's prophecy in multiple revelations, writings, and discourses. In none of these did he indicate that the fathers were patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, it can be argued that in every case, Joseph Smith's audiences would have understood that the children and the fathers he mentioned were direct biological relatives. Their hearts were to turn towards each other, resulting in the performance of sealing ordinances to bind them eternally together. There is a chart here where there have documented Joseph's references to the hearts of the children, the fathers, according to Elijah's mission, showing that none of them reference Abraham and that all would have been understood as a literal father and a literal biological son or daughter as the children. Abraham, of course, would be somewhere in the links, but creating a chain back to Adam was the primary focus. Joseph explained there needs to be a, quote, welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glory should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time, end of quote. We must be linked back to Adam because he was a son of God. Through a chain of sealings leading back to him, we too are sealed to God. Heading, Nauvoo Adoption Sealings. Snuffer's view of adoption sealings is problematic in other ways. Sealing records from the Nauvoo Temple show that a total of 82 individuals were sealed to their own biological parents through child-to-parent sealings. Importantly, five of Hiram Smith's own children were sealed to him by proxy, a plain case where a living person was sealed to a dead biological father in contradiction to Snuffer's declaration. In addition, 211 people were sealed to non-parents, generally prominent church leaders. No person was sealed to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or any of the Old Testament patriarchs, which would indicate that they did not interpret the meaning of fathers as Snuffer does. Then there is a chart identifying the days the, uh, of the sealings, the fathers to whom the children were sealing, sealed, and how many were biologically related and not biologically related, and who the mother uh, was, because these were sealings of children to parents. No additional adoption sealings were performed by the saints after the Nauvoo Temple closed on February 6, 1846, until the opening of the St. George Temple in 1877. In Utah temples, two types of adoptions were performed, some to non-kindred fathers like church leaders, but never Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, and others to biologically related progenitors. Sealings to non-relatives were discontinued in 1894 when Wilfred Woodruff clarified that we should be sealed to our biological parents as far back as genealogical records would allow. Snuffer states that because of a vision... Brigham Young received on February 17, 1847, quote, the practice of adoption came to an end, end of quote, page 31. This is ironic for, for a couple of reasons. First, as discussed above, adoptions were only performed in the Nauvoo Temple between January 11th and February 6th of 1846 for less than a month. 
Either they ended at that time or decades later after 1877 when they were again performed in the St. George Temple. The second irony is that Snuffer treats Brigham Young's vision as genuine, even though he paints him as an adulterer leading the saints into whoredoms at that time. See page 41. Heading, Confusion about Priesthood Keys and Presiding Quorums. On page 40, Snuffer changes the topic by criticizing the organization of the church after Joseph Smith's death. Quote, the first presidency under Joseph Smith was a quorum equal to the quorum of the Twelve. The quorum of the Seventy formed a quorum equal in authority to the quorum of, of them, and therefore with the first presidency. None of the equality survived Brigham Young. The standing high councils of Zion formed a quorum equal in authority with the first presidency and the quorum of the Twelve. All the keys, if the term is used, were held 100% by the First Presidency, 100% by the Quorum of the Twelve, 100% by the Quorum of the Seventy, and 100% in the High Councils. This meant there was no primacy in the Twelve. End of quote, page 40. In this statement, Snuffer teaches multiple falsehoods regarding several of the prophets' teachings. It is true that section 107, verses 21 through 26 and 36 and 37 explain that the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the Seventy, the Standing High Councils, and the High Council in Zion all form quorums that are, quote, equal in authority, unquote. However, God's house is a house of order, as mentioned in multiple scriptures. Those verses were not saying that there are five presiding quorums who function independent of each other. Rather, they hold similar authority to build up the church and receive revelation to fulfill their individual stewardships. Integral to the order of God's house is presiding authority. The first presidency presides over the quorum of the twelve. Quote, the twelve are the presiding are the traveling presiding high council to officiate in the name of the Lord under the direction of the first presidency of the church. DNC 107 verse 33. Together these two quorums preside, quote, for unto you the twelve and those the first presidency who are appointed with you to be your counselors and your leaders is the power of this priesthood given. End of quote. DNC 112 verse 30. The seventy act under the twelve, quote, the seventy are to act in the name of the Lord under the direction of the twelve, and a quote, DNC 107, verse 34. The other two councils mentioned, the standing high councils at the stakes of Zion and the high council in Zion, are not discussed further. Snuffer states that all of these quorums hold all of the keys, which contradicts DNC 132, verse 7. In that verse, we learn that, quote, there is never but one on earth at a time on whom this power and the keys of this priesthood are conferred, end of quote. The one mentioned is not a quorum, but a man who controls all the keys. Quote, I have appointed unto my servant Joseph to hold this power in the last days, end of quote, verse 7. The president of the quorum of the twelve presides when the first presidency is not available. The Lord explained to Thomas B. Mars, president of the Twelve in 1837, quote, Verily, I say unto you, my servant Thomas, thou art the man whom I have chosen to hold the keys of my kingdom as pertaining to the Twelve abroad in all nations. 
that thou mayest be my servant to unlock the door of the kingdom in all places where my servant Joseph and my servant Sidney and my servant Hiram cannot come. That's end of quote, DNC 112, 16 and 17. Upon the death of the key holder, the first presidency is dissolved and is no longer capable of presiding. The keys of the kingdom pass to the president of the Quorum of the Twelve because at that point he presides, quote, in all places, end of quote. Contrary to Snuffer's allegation, Brigham did not change Joseph Smith's teachings regarding presiding priesthood authority and keys. He fulfilled them exactly. At the time of the martyrdom, Brigham Young was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Upon learning of the death of the prophet, Brigham recalled, Brother Orson Pratt sat at my left. We were both leaning back on our chairs. Bringing my hand down on my knee, I said, The keys of the kingdom are right here with the church. It is also clear that Joseph Smith had prepared Brigham Young to preside. Just a few months earlier, in January of 1844, the prophet instructed the senior apostle in the Quorum and the Quorum of the Twelve regarding the administration of the highest temple ordinances and then authorized him to administer them to the other members of the Quorum. The Quorum of the Twelve was the only priesthood quorum of general authority status that had received all temple ordinances. Brigham explained, quote, No man can put another between the Twelve and the Prophet Joseph. Why? Because Joseph was their file leader, and he has committed into their hands the kings of the kingdom for all of the world. End of quote. Heading, Joseph left an incomplete building. The observations above illustrate an ongoing weakness of Denver Schnuffer's works. It appears he quotes specific scriptures and statements, often giving a novel interpretation, but he fails to deal with the numerous contradictory evidences to his ideas. Sometimes it appears he is trying to rewrite LDS church history to comply with his own ideas rather than trying to document what actually occurred and what was actually taught. Toward the final pages of Snuffer's plural marriage essay, he continues this process by going on the attack, not against polygamy, but against Joseph Smith and the church over the past decades. A consistent theme in Snuffer's writings is that the restoration is incomplete, lacking, unfinished, and inadequate. God's effort to establish the gospel in this dispensation have sputtered, According to Denver, quote, Gen- Joseph left an incomplete building and an incomplete family or house of God, end of quote, page 28. Continuing with quotes, Joseph Smith was working backward in restoring the earliest teaching, scripture, covenant, and ordinances as part of his brief mi- ministry that ended abruptly with his death. The still not completed restoration of the gospel must return again, and the original body of teachings, covenants, and ordinances revealed in the beginning to the first fathers, who are now resurrected in the heavens. There was such haste and foolishness in Joseph's day that it hindered God's work, pages 31 through 32. We know almost nothing at this point of the full scope of the original body of teachings, revelations, ordinations, and rites. Even all that came through Joseph is but a glimpse, page 34. Joseph Smith was beginning to work on in Nauvoo, but never finished, page 47. End of quotes. Contradicting this view are God's words to Joseph Smith in 1843, quote, I am the Lord thy God. And I gave unto thee my servant Joseph an appointment, and restore all things. End of quote. 
it is possible that he died before God was able to complete his restoration. Joseph explained that this was not the case. Quote, I know what I say. I understand my mission and business. God Almighty is my shield. And what can man do if God is my friend? I shall not be sacrificed until my time comes. Then I shall be offered freely. End of quote. This statement declares that Joseph would live until his time was come, and the Lord stated that through the prophet he would restore all things. The prophet taught, we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. End of quote. Articles of Faith 9. So additional revelations are expected. However, to allege that God did not restore everything that he wanted to restore through Joseph prior to the martyrdom is unsupported. Heading, quote, The history of the LDS Church has been a long downward path, end of quote. Perhaps the leading message of Denver's more recent writings and discourses deals with the alleged apostasy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. According to Snuffer, the apostasy unfolded in parallel with the earliest efforts of the Restoration, quote, the jarring and contention, envying and strife of Joseph's time was so toxic, heavens weep at us when it might instead rejoice over us. End of quote, page 36. To support this view, he emphasizes in his writings multiple events that either initiated or perpetuated an apostasy. In 1832, DNC 84, treating lightly the Book of Mormon. In 1838, an expulsion from Missouri, on page 39. 1841, DNC 124, the five-year building time of the Nauvoo Temple. 1846, the forced exodus from Nauvoo, page 39. After 1847, the afflictions, judgments, and wrath of God at the saints at their pride, lying, deceit, hypocrisy, murders, priestcrafts, and whoredoms, page 39. After 1847, inquisitorial abuse of the population, page 40. 1857, mass murders, page 40. 1890, the manifesto. And the 1890s, quote, contradictions in fundamental teachings, changes to the ordinances, end of quote, page 40. 1878, changes to temple rites, page 40. And the 2000s, a quest for popularity, page 40. It seems that without missing any opportunities for criticism, Denver points his finger of scorn at any perceived imperfection or imperfect behavior manifested by church members over the decades, contending that this event or that event caused the church to lose its favor with God and apparently the authority to perform valid ordinances and receive inspiration. His vitriol reaches its height on pages 39 and 40. Quote, You can see the signs of apostasy all along the way. From the condemnation in 1832, the expulsion from Missouri, the forced exodus from Nauvoo, the suffering during all and following the exodus, the afflictions, judgments, and wrath of God of the saints, their pride, lying, deceit, hypocrisy, murders, priestcrafts, and whoredoms, as Christ foretold, inquisitorial abuse of the population once isolated from the U.S., mass murders, contradictions in the fundamental teachings, changes to the ordinances, including the temple rites, quest for popularity, and centrally controlled tight correlated rejection of the teachings. The history of the LDS Church has been a long downward path. 
it has walked away from the light and increasingly embraced darkness. Its members are now ruled by traditions that contradict the scriptures and commandments of God. They are asleep and cannot be wakened. God will now do something new and leave them to their own way. Pages 39 and 40, end of quote. In Dever Snuffer's version of church history, unrighteousness overwhelmed the saints from the very first years after the organization of the church, leaving the entire movement in paroxysms that prevented it from ever gaining spiritual traction on earth. LDS leaders acknowledged that through the decades since the church's 1830 organization, there were groups of Latter-day Saints who were unrighteous and merited condemnation, but that is not Snuffer's message. He implies not only errant members, but also severe transgressions among core leaders in the highest councils. In his reconstruction, there is no critical mass of obedient saints to keep inspired guidance and authority in the church. Heading, The Need for an Apostate Church Snuffer's rhetorical offensive against the church is not unexpected. Whether his readers recognize what is happening, his denunciations fulfill a critical need in his overall theology. He must demonstrate that a huge void exists on the restoration landscape. Snuffer's efforts are impressive. He eloquently describes a religious organization that has been, from the earliest days, compromised in its mission. The apostasy began early and experienced additional convulsions since the 1830s. By his accounting, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has simply limped along spiritually to the 21st century. The overwhelming question generated through Snuffer's writings is simply, what are the Latter-day Saints living today to do? The answer, in his view, is just as obvious. The saints must find a new visionary voice that can save the entire endeavor. The apostasy, as described by Snuffer, creates a wide opportunity for a new reformer who is in some ways just like Joseph Smith, only he will be more successful and apparently more righteous. In other words, There would be no need for Denver Snuffer's declarations and ideas if the church established by Joseph Smith still held the priesthood keys and prophetic leadership. Anyone wishing to garner influence among the Latter-day Saints must first foment the belief that something is now missing in that organization and that an antidote for the described mess exists. Heading, Denver Snuffer, a new visionary and seer? In my first general response to Denver Snuffer's claims that was posted on josephsmithpolygamy.org in April of 2015, I predicted that at some point in the future he would make claims to priesthood authority. Quote, Denver Snuffer's situation is even more distant from Joseph Smith's teachings as he struggles to deal with his lack of priesthood authority. Joseph Smith taught that genuine authority was always needed, no exceptions. But Snuffer does not have any authority and has yet to claim a new dispensation of authority. That may yet come as his condemnation of the church rises in pitch and volume. Many other dissenters in the past have followed this course and gathered a following around them, claiming new revelation and eventually even new priesthood powers. Time will tell. End of quote. Ironically, we did not need to wait long for this assertion. Evidently, it can be found in Denver's essay on plural marriage. On page 38, he provides a modified drawing, originally penned by Orson Hyde, where he identifies a line of priesthood authority. Denver then writes in the names of early patriarchs who held the priesthood in a continual line from Adam to Melchizedek. And then he writes, After the days of Shem, who was given the new name Melchizedek, 
the direct line of patriarchs fell into apostasy and lost the birthright. There was no continuation of the line of a government because it was broken by apostasy and had to be restored again. Page 38, end of quote. Snuffer posits an apostasy between Melchizedek and Abraham, which is puzzling since they were contemporaries. Abraham paid tithing to Melchizedek, quote, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. Regardless, Snuffer expounds how Abraham sought for a restoration, quote, Abraham sought it out after his fathers turned from their righteousness unto the worshiping of the gods of the heathen. He sought for a restoration of the kingdom of God. He wanted a restoration of this right or blessing of the fathers, which only one man on earth can hold at a time. End of quote, page 38. Apparently, this is also a reference to a restoration of the sealing keys, which God explained there is never but one on earth at a time on whom this power and the keys of the priesthood are conferred. DNC 132, verse 7. Snuffer continues to explain that God directly cured the apostasy Abraham experienced. Quote, when there is a living man who is in possession of that, there is no problem for him to ask God and get an answer. It was the right belonging to the fathers after a period of apostasy and the break of this line. Abraham received it by adoption across generations who were dropped from the government or family of God. Therefore, God has the ability to cure the break in generations by restoring us again. Page 39, end of quote. The inferences are clear. If God could cure an apostasy in Abraham's time, then God can cross generations and restore again the blessings which only one man on earth can hold. Snuffer asserts a similar apostasy today, but who is the new Abraham? Who is the recipient of the Abrahamic-level blessings? Snuffer tells us that he is the new witness who has been appointed, quote, All that was left at the end was for a witness to be appointed, to come to declare, quote, Now it has come to an end, end of quote. In the last talk in, in the 10th lecture series, I said, the witness has now come, and I am he. That's page 39, end of quote. Elsewhere, on page 30, 42, he writes simply, quote, I was shown, end of quote. This is the language of a seer. While I'm, I am not privy to Snuffer's additional teachings on this subject, he has encouraged rebaptism, which could not occur without priesthood. DNC 26 verses 1 through 4. I do not wish to misrepresent Denver Snuffer's message, but the overall implication is that the Lord has cured the reported apostasy by giving him new truths and new authorities, just like Abraham received. As a result, Snuffer is the one man on earth holding priesthood keys. Heading. Is Denver Snuffer unique? As a researcher who has studied Mormon descending groups for over two decades, I can attest that Denver Snuffer's claims are not unique. During the 1990s, researchers Bruce Lawrence, Marty E. Marty, and Scott Appleby studied many different descending groups and their leaders throughout the world. They have identified several factors that are common to most descending movements. One, they advocate a minority viewpoint. Two, they see themselves as a righteous remnant. Three, they demonize their opposition. Four, 
they are usually led by charismatic authoritarian males. And five, they are selective regarding their tradition and beliefs, emphasizing specific tenets while ignoring others of equal historical importance. In these things, Denver Snuffer and his followers seem very consistent. However, they are not alone in LDS history. That is, they are not the first and will certainly not be the last to break away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, claiming their own revelations and divine mandates. Dozens of similar individuals can be identified in the historical record in just the 20th century alone. Example 1, Lauren C. Woolley who claimed multiple visits with Jesus Christ, even having seen him laugh in one of their conversations. He claimed priesthood authority given under the direction of a resurrected Joseph Smith who was physically present at the time. John T. Clark claimed to be the one mighty and strong of DNC 85 verse 7 and reported that he had, quote, seen the Savior several times, also Joseph Smith and his successors in office, end of quote. Maurice Glendenning, heard voices in the Adamic language, a language he was taught that was taught to him in a twinkling of the eye. He claimed new Aaronic priesthood authority and revelations. Leroy Wilson reported a vision in 1933, quote, I came to the belief in this because God revealed it to me. I have seen the Savior. I have conversed with my Father in heaven, and I have seen my glorious Heavenly Mother, end of quote. Joseph W. Musser reported divine guidance, revelations, and prophecies, and described a priesthood organization that existed independent of the church. Eldon Kingston reported that after seeking divine guidance in in a cave in Davis County, an angel visited him and appointed him to lead. He organized the Davis County Cooperative and his own church. Ben LeBaron wrote in the 1950s, quote, The world is the wickedest ever in history. Yeah, about 20%, I am sure. The Lord has told me. The Mormon people are so wicked and stiff-necked that three-fourths will have to be destroyed. They have apostatized to be a friend of the world and do not follow the Holy Spirit. End of quote. Ben and several of his brothers claim to hold priesthood keys. Gerald Peterson reported angelic visitations of a deceased individual, Rulin Allred. Quote, Within an hour after Rulin C. Allred was killed, he was seen entering my office. This happened about 5 p.m. on 10 May 1977. He came to where I was, sitting in my chair, and spoke to me very clearly and plainly. James D. Harmston described that in response to a prayer circle he held in his home, The heavens were open, and he and his wife received visits from divine messengers, including the Father and the Son. He also reported that on November 25, 1990, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses appeared to him and bestowed priesthood keys they had allegedly taken from the LDS church leaders. Robert C. Crossfield has dictated numerous revelations from Jesus Christ, currently compiled as the second book of commandments. Brian David Mitchell quoted God in a revelation dated February 9, 2002, stating, quote, I have raised up my servant, Emmanuel David Isaiah, even my righteous right hand, to be a light and a covenant to my people. And my servant, Emmanuel David Isaiah, is the fullness of the gospel which I, the Lord, brought forth out of obscurity and out of darkness through my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., end of quote. Adam Swap 
On December 26, 1987, Adam received a revelation stating, quote, Thus saith the Lord unto my servant Adam, This generation is a most wicked generation. It is the most wicked ever to inhabit the face of the earth. End of quote. Three weeks later, Adam Swaff placed a bomb in the LDS Stake Center in Camas. Exploding at 3 a.m., it did considerable damage, but no one was physically harmed. Further research would identify many, many more alternate voices, primarily men, who have proclaimed their own revelations and divine visions, including those that arose in Joseph Smith's day and later in the 19th century. Is Denver Snuffer's message significantly different from those of the men mentioned above? The details may be different, but generally speaking, he is not alone in the types of claims and teachings he proclaims. Heading, Why Would God Allow an Apostasy After the Restoration? A critical issue is why God would have allowed an apostasy to occur after the 1830s restoration. The heavenly anticipations for that restoration were immense. There were pre-mortal preparations, prophecies of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon through a choice seer named Joseph, the creation of the small plates of Nephi to compensate for the 116 pages of the Book of Lehi that would be lost by Martin Harris, and many other things. To posit another falling away after such an elaborate restorative effort would not be expected unless it was unavoidable in God's arithmetic. Evidently, the driving force for the apostasy described by Snuffer is the principle of common consent, which, according to him, binds God to the unrighteous decisions of church members. Quote, and all things shall be done by common consent in the church by much prayer and faith. End of quote. That's DNC 26.2. In other words, if a majority of members consent to a wayward path or an uninspired leader, even if they don't realize it, God is going to respect their agency and allow them to lead the church astray. To justify this interpretation, dissenters cite scriptural examples where God gave an individual or a group of his followers what they wanted, not what they needed spiritually. Included are references to the Israelites receiving a king in the time of Samuel, of Joseph Smith giving Martin the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon, even though many previous requests by Joseph had been denied, and of the Lord giving the Israelites in the desert the law of Moses when they rejected the higher law. However, God has made it clear that he is not bound to unrighteous choices. Quote, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, Ye have no promise. End of quote, DNC 82, verse 10. In July of 1828, the Lord first introduced the principle to Joseph. Quote, For God doth not walk in crooked paths, neither doth he turn from the right hand or the left, neither doth he vary from that which he has said. Therefore his paths are straight, and his course is one eternal round. Remember, remember, that it is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of man. End of quote, DNC 3, verses 2 and 3. Here we learn that the Lord's work will not be frustrated by the work of men. Men's choices and decisions will not cause God to vary from that which he has said. Concerning evil men, the Lord instructed, quote, I will not suffer that they shall destroy my work, yea, I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. End of quote, DNC 10:43. But how can God assure that the church stays on the right path? He told Joseph Smith, quote, All things are present before mine eyes. End of quote. God's foreknowledge guarantees that nothing will happen within the church or outside of it that will surprise him. In the premortal world, the Lord selected the individuals that would be his rulers in the church here on earth. Quote, 
Now the Lord had shown unto me Abraham the intelligences that were organized before the world was, and among these there were many noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. End of quote, Abraham 3, 22 and 23. Joseph Smith explained, quote, Every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before this world was. I suppose I was ordained to this very office in that grand council, end of quote. Certainly a man could have received a premortal ordination and then failed to magnify his office after receiving it in mortality. mortality. However, Snuffer's view is that Joseph Smith failed to be valiant. Brigham Young failed to be valiant. And virtually every Latter-day Saint he mentions failed, even though they would have been ordained before birth to fulfill their callings. Snuffer's version of premortal foreordination conflicts with the scriptures and the prophet's teachings. If God, who knows the end from the beginning, knew these men would fail... Why did he call them one right after another? Denver quotes from DNC 138 on page 41, so he apparently believes the revelation is genuinely from God. Verses 53 and 54 of DNC 138 name several church leaders, specifically Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, and Wilford Woodruff, saying they were, quote, reserved to come forth in the fullness of times to take part in the laying the foundations of the great Latter-day work, including the building of temples and the performances of ordinances therein, end of quote. In Snuffer's version of church history, these men were reserved to come forth and preside in their unrighteousness over a stumbling church that had has consistently failed to progress as God intended. It doesn't appear these men were very special since, according to Snuffer, they accomplished so little. An alternate view is that God called valiant premortal spirits who, although imperfect and presiding over imperfect church members, have guided the church just as God knew it would it could progress. If a leader apostatized in his or her feelings, they were released by God's hand. Quote, For verily thus saith the Lord, that inasmuch as there are those among you who deny my name, others shall be planted in their stead and receive their bishopric. End of quote. DNC 114 verse 2. This has already happened to Denver Snuffer, who no longer serves in any calling in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The callings he held in the past are now fulfilled by other church members. On April 6th, the Apostle of 1861, Apostle John Taylor assured his listeners that if a corrupt, corrupt man should preside, he would be removed according to, the, to God's time. Quote, Suppose a corrupt man is presiding in a certain place. His corruptions are soon known. People need not strive to turn good into evil because they think that some man does wrong. They need not turn calumniators and defamers, for all will come right in its turn. Then attend to your business, work the works of righteousness, sustain the constituted authorities of the church until God removes them, and he will do so in his own time. End of quote. The design of the church is for callings to be issued in an orderly way through bishops who are inspired judges in Israel. God's house is a house of order. The prophet explained, quote, I will inform you that it is contrary to the economy of God for any member of the church or anyone to receive instructions for those in authority higher than themselves. Therefore, you will see the impropriety of giving heed to them. But if any have a vision, a vision or a visitation from a heavenly messenger, it must be for their own benefit and instruction. For the fundamental principles, government, and doctrine of the church is vested in the keys of the kingdom. End of quote. 
In more extreme cases, God could remove a leader by calling him or her home through death. For example, David W. Patton, president of the Quorum of the Twelve in 1838, died on October 25th in the Battle of Crooked River. Was God responsible for his death? Without explaining why, the Lord told Joseph Smith plainly, quote, David Patton, I have taken unto myself, quote, DNC 124, verse 130. Brigham Young agreed that God holds this power. Quote, the Lord Almighty leads this church and will never suffer you to be led astray if you are found doing your duty. You may go home and sleep as sweetly as a babe in a mother's arms as to any danger of your leaders leading you astray. For if they should try to do so, the Lord would quickly sweep them from the earth. This is not to say that Patton would have apostatized, but it shows that God's omnipotence and omniscience assure that his church on earth will be led by men and women who will accomplish his will. These observations are very important in interpreting Denver Snuffer's message. They mean that if an apostasy occurred after 1830, when Joseph Smith established the church, it could only have occurred if God had intended it to happen. Heading Scriptural predictions of an apostasy 400 years after Christ's visit. We are promised, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret works, his secret unto his servants the prophets, Amos 3.7. Therefore, if a latter-day apostasy was a future part of the restoration started by Joseph Smith, we might expect God's prophet to have revealed a warning to his followers who were going to apostatize. It is, a clear, it is clear that the scriptures predict an apostasy would occur 400 years after Christ visited to the Americas. Alma explained, Behold, um, quote, Behold, I perceive that this very people, the Nephites, according to the spirit of revelation that is in me, in 400 years from the time that Jesus Christ shall manifest himself unto them, shall dwindle in unbelief. End of quote. That's Alma 45.10. Many other prophets referred to an apostasy that the truth would be lost from the Lehites and that they would dwindle in unbelief was a huge issue for God's leaders in the Book of Mormon. A restoration was also predicted, quote, Yea, even if they should dwindle in unbelief, the Lord shall prolong their days unto the time shall come which have been spoken by our fathers and also by the prophet Zenos and many other prophets concerning the restoration of our brethren the Lamanites again to a knowledge of the truth. Helaman 15.11. Also, And it shall come to pass that the Lord shall commence his work among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people to bring about the restoration of his people upon the earth. 2 Nephi 30, verse 8. The church, and that end of quote, the church was established to accomplish this restoration. Quote, Yea, the word of the Lord concerning his church, established in the last days for the restoration of his people, and he has spoken by the mouth of the prophets and for the gathering of the saints to stand on Mount Zion, which is, shall be the city of the New Jerusalem. DNC 84, verse 2, end of quote. Anciently, the Lord explained to Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, concerning a choice seer that would be raised up to do the work of restoration. Quote, a choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of my loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. And unto him will I give commandment, that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren, which shall be of great worth unto them, even unto bringing of them to a knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. And his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. 
And he shall be like unto me, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people unto salvation. End of quote. Second Nephi 3, verses 3 and 15. Without ambiguity, the Book of Mormon predicts an apostasy of the Lehites and the restoration through a prophet named Joseph. Heading, No Prophecies of a Latter-day Saint Apostasy and Restoration. A weighty question is whether the scriptures also prophesy of a Latter-day apostasy and restoration, one occurring after Joseph Smith performed his work. Denver Snuffer and other critics allege that they do. Perhaps the most popular verse quoted are Jesus Christ's words in 3 Nephi, chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, quote, And thus commandeth the Father, that I should say unto you, At that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel, and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts above all nations, above all the people of the whole earth, and shall be filled with all matters of lyings, and of deceits, and of mischiefs, and all matter of hypocrisy, and murders, and priestcrafts, and whoredoms, and of secret abominations, And if they do all those things and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, behold, saith the Lord, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. End of quote. While critics may affirm that this is a prophecy of a Latter-day apostasy, the language is certainly indefinite when compared to the predictions of a dwindling of unbelief of the entire church 400 years after Christ. While the Savior refers to a time when, quote, the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, end of quote, the identity of the Gentiles is less clear. Snuffer and his followers affirm that those Gentiles are the Latter-day Saints and their leaders in the 21st century, not just a portion, but the entire church membership. The argument goes that they are the only ones who have received the fullness of the gospel, say they're the only ones who could reject it. To support this view, they further allege that current church members are guilty of pride, lying, deceits, mischiefs, hypocrisies, murders, priestcrafts, and whoredoms. An alternate interpretation is that the Gentiles who reject the fullness of the gospel do not need to have it first to uh, need not have first embraced it. If someone offers me an apple, I don't need to ta- first take a bite out of it before I can reject it. I can simply look at the apple and say no thank you. Similarly, investigators who reject the message of the missionaries today simultaneously reject the ordinances of baptism and the fullness of the gospel which the missionaries do offer. They don't have to be baptized and attend the temple before they can reject the fullness of the gospel. George Q. Cannon explained the Gentiles' rejection would lead to the gospel being preached to the descendants of Nephi. Quote, The gospel would be revealed and that it should be received by some of the Gentiles, that when it should be received by the Gentiles, it should be carried by them to the descendants of Nephi and his brethren. As they have rejected the gospel message, missionaries have been called to other lands to preach to those who are not of the house of Israel. End of quote. Consistent with this view are the Savior's comments two verses earlier. Quote, but woe saith the Father unto the unbelieving of the Gentiles. End of quote. Third Nephi 16 and 8. Christ condemned the unbelievers without addressing the believers, which are not mentioned any time in the discourse. Verse 10's condemnation of the Gentiles is just a continued discussion of the Gentiles he identified in verse 8. To interpret this as saying that all church members in the latter days were Gentiles and that they would apostatize is not warranted. There would be unbelieving and believing Gentiles in that day. The believers would continue missionary work. Other scriptures are also advanced by critics 
as containing prophecies of Latter-day apostasy, including 2 Nephi 28, verses 11 through 15, and Mormon 8, 32 through 33. I have addressed them in other writings available here on the interpreter, but the verses are not specific. Multiple valid interpretations of these verses are possible, with snuffers being less defensible. To summarize, the Book of Mormon predicts a dwindling in unbelief 400 years after Christ's visit and a restoration through a choice seer centuries later. The language is plain and unmistakable. However, there is no parallel prophecy of a Latter-day apostasy and second restoration. Ambiguous language found in a few verses can be recruited and narrowly interpreted in order to support the snuffer's assertions, but his allegations of a complete apostasy necessitating a new dispensation in our day are without scriptural support. Heading. Prophecy supports that the restored church will continue to the millennium. If the scriptures do not prophesy of a latter of a later apostasy, what do they predict? Multiple revelations and statements from Joseph Smith support the church he established will persist to the millennium. One of the plainest was uttered in October of 1831 in Hiram, Ohio. Quote, The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as a stone which is cut out of a mountain shall, without hands, shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. End of quote, DNC 65, verse 2. Snuffer's version is apparently that the gospel would not roll forth in 1831, but would wobble forth through a long downward path, page 40, until in 2010, when a new visionary would arise to reset the gospel rolling. Several other revelations plainly acknowledge that the church established through Joseph Smith is the last kingdom. That is, it would not apostatize or be given to another people. Quote, Therefore, Thou art blessed from henceforth that bear the keys of the kingdom given unto you, which kingdom is coming forth for the last time. DNC 90 verse 2. For unto you the twelve and those of the first presidency who are appointed with you to be your counselors and leaders is the power of the priesthood given for the last days and for the last time, in which in the which is the dispensation of the fullness of time, which power you hold in connection with all those who have received a dispensation at any time from the beginning of the creation. For verily I say unto you, the keys of the dispensation which ye have received have come down from the fathers, and last of all, being sent down from heaven unto you. DNC 112, 30-32. Other revelations reflect the same expectation. In March of 1829, the Lord described Joseph Smith's efforts as, quote, the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. End of quote, DNC 5 for 14. The snuffer version depicts a bannerless church that is not clear like the moon or fair like the sun and never has been. Similarly, the prophet taught, quote, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now we can, plain, we can discover plainly that this figure is given to represent the church as it ha- shall come forth in the last days. End of quote. Now, what was coming forth to, was the coming forth to begin in 1830 or in 2010? 
Although the church was very small in the beginning, Joseph Smith had a prophetic sense of its grand destiny. Wilford Woodruff recalled a priesthood meeting in Kirtland, Ohio, in April of 1834. Quote, the prophet called on all who held the priesthood to gather in, into a, the little log house, schoolhouse, that they had there. It was a small house, perhaps 14 squeak fair, but it held the whole of the priesthood of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who were then in the town of Kirtland, and who had gathered together to go off in Zion's camp. That was the first time I ever saw Oliver Cowdery, or heard him speak. The first time I ever saw Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and the two Pratts and Orson Hyde and many others. There were no apostles in the church except Joseph and Oliver, end of quote. After the meeting had begun, the prophet tried to awaken the brethren to a realization of the future state of God's kingdom on earth. Quote, when we got together, the prophet called upon the elders of Israel with him to bear testimony of this work. Those that I have named spoke, and a good many that I have not named bore their testimonies. When they got through, the prophet said, Brethren, I have been very much edified and instructed in your testimonies here tonight, but I want to say to you before the Lord that you know no more concerning the destinies of this church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You don't comprehend it. I was rather surprised, he said. It is only a little handful of priesthood you see here tonight, but the church, this church will fill North and South America. It will fill the whole earth. End of quote. Heading, How can the church be true when the Latter-day Saints manifest unrighteousness? The negative vitriol directed at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Suffer's writings and in his plural marriage essay contain a kernel, contains a kernel of truth. The Latter-day Saints have not been as righteous as they should have been. Ever since 1830, church leaders have been concerned and have consistently admonished members to improve. Today, the problem persists. Attendance at church meetings is perhaps 50%, and many adults who participate are not spiritually engaged. The percentage of adults holding temple recommends is even smaller, and those who qualify for sacred ordinances could honor them better. The youth sometimes struggle with distractions and moral issues. Nevertheless, these observations do not validate Snuffer's claims, nor justify his harsh criticisms. Why? Because his standard of requisite obedience is vastly different from the Lord's. Heavenly Father doesn't look on sins with allowance, but he does not require the level of near perfection that Snuffer implies is needed in order to assist with God's work and receive his blessings. The scriptures describe our Lord as filled with loving kindness and long-suffering toward his children, who is a God of compassion, who is pitiful, and who is merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. To ancient Israel, his hands remained stretched out despite their transgressions. Through the prophet, this loving Heavenly Father described the standard of compliance that must be met if mortals are to receive knowledge, revelation, prophecy, and other spiritual gifts. Those blessings are for, quote, the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments and him that seeketh so to do, end of quote, DNC 46.9. Keeping all of the commandments is not required, but seeking to keep all of the commandments is required. Similarly, Joseph Smith prayed in 1836, quote, O Lord, remember thy servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and all his afflictions and persecutions, how he has covenanted with Jehovah and vowed with thee, O mighty God of Jacob, and the commandments which thou hast given him, and that he hath sincerely striven to do thy will. End of quote. DNC 10968. 
Again, perfection was not the expectation, but sincerely striving to do the Lord's will was the requirement. So the Lord is willing to bless those who seek to keep his commandments and sincerely, sincerely strive to do his will. However, has a core group of believers always existed among the members and leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who were doing just that? Question mark. Critics like Snuffer may allege that the answer is no, but a simple review of church history shows that there would be an error. The willingness of the early saints to make sacrifices like practicing polygamy, building temples stone by stone, and migrating to the West support that they were sincerely striving and seeking to be obedient. In the past century, different indicators like fulfilling mission calls, keeping the word of wisdom, attending the temple, serving in church calling, paying tithing and offerings, and trying to become Christ-like have always existed. It is an undeniable fact that among the leadership and within each congregation, some Latter-day Saints have fulfilled the Lord's requirements, even if the number of seekers, sincere seekers has been small. In the eyes of the critics, it has never been zero. The Latter-day Saints may have faltered in their quest for perfection over the past 170 years. However, they have never dwindled in unbelief as the Lehites did after about 400 A.D. The continued presence of seekers and strivers within the church and especially among its priesthood leadership supports that God has never had reason to abandon the church and the Latter-day Saints. Since the beginning of the Restoration, the church has continued to expand its membership, increase missionary work, build temples that now dot the earth, and establish a tradition of conservative moral values among its members. These areas of growth are consistent with the prediction that the church has left the wilderness. DNC 33, verse 5, to become an ensign for the nations, Isaiah 11:12. The actions of this church literally fulfill prophecies as, quote, and, the right, and righteousness I will send down out of heaven, and truth I will send forth out of the earth to bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, yea, and also the resurrection of all men, and righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth. End of quote, Moses 7, 7 62. Denver Snuffer has depicted the church as a vast wasteland of immorality, page 41. But such is the facade he needs to legitimize his position as a new visionary among the people. He is like many other dissenters who have come and gone over past decades. A more believable conclusion is that sufficient levels of righteousness have always existed in the church and among its leaders, so that the church has never been bereft of, or of the oracles to receive revelation or the authority to perform valid saving ordinances. The kingdom of God started rolling in 1830 and continues even today.